we are blessed to have Randy and Julie here with us today. Uh, Randy and Julie Garris from Joplin, Missouri. And uh, they have three kids. They have eight, almost eight, grandchildren. And uh, they have words of wisdom for us today about the subject of marriage. Would you welcome them, please? appreciate the kind introductions I've gotten, but I have learned to look behind kind, uh, complimentary things. One Thursday morning, I came into my office, and there was a stack of letters on my desk, and they were from second graders from Wednesday night. And the second graders had all written appreciation notes to the preacher, which is, I'm sure, high on their priority list what they wanted to do. The teacher claimed she just picked them up randomly and just put them there. There's 15 to 25 of them, I don't know how many there were, and I pick up the first one. It starts off, Dear Mr. Garris, we are so glad that you are a preacher. Never forget, and open the inside page, we are paying for you. And, and I think the third one started off very similar. You know, we're praying that God gives you shorter sermons was the third one. So I, I'm, I'm always listening to that second page that follows behind the introduction or whatever it is. So um, We have so much we'd like to cover. Um, let me just jump in. I want to speak a word to singles. Some of the most courageous people in this room are singles. Uh, some of the people who are most admired and be applauded into heaven are singles. Uh, anybody can be married if you set your standards low enough. I can get you married by 3 o'clock this afternoon. You set your standards low enough. There are people in this room that are single by choice. Because you could have compromised anywhere along the line. You could have made the desire to have a family to have been your God and sacrificed the heart of your real God for that. And you chose not to. And so some of the people most to be applauded are singles. Some of you in this room are single by choice. Some of you in this room are single not by your choice. In which case, I, obviously every story is different. But what it means is the sins or the consequences of somebody else's choice you're living out. Whether we like it or not, our choices impact everybody. You can't let me live in a family that my choices don't hurt somebody. There is no private sin. Every sin spills over on other people. I was a little kid. I used to carry a bucket a lot of places. I don't know. I was probably 36 before I carried a bucket that suddenly didn't slop out. I mean, you just carry a bucket and water is slopping. All sin is that way. It spills over. And so some of you are living out the consequences of somebody's sin. Can I tell you to live godly and honorable when you're living out the consequences of somebody's sin is to be deeply applauded. Some of you are single because, quite frankly, death came way too soon for somebody. I am glad for the season of life you had in that. And I know this is a different season than you would have chosen. There's an awful lot of people that ought to be applauded for how godly they're handling the season. Everything I made, made right at heaven's gates. This is a short season. This this season of we're in the flesh. But I, I just want to remind you that the Bible doesn't make a great distinction on the heart of God when it comes to the size of your family. You see, a family of one is still a family. In, in the family of God. In a family of one and a family of four... The heart of God is the same. When I go through all the scriptures, it says a cup of cold water and give it in Jesus' name. You'll surely not lose your reward. When, when I read things like don't, 
Don't invest your life in the things of this world. You invest in the things above. When I go to passages like pure religion in the sight of God is to take care of widows and orphans and their affliction. Not a single one of those has a qualifier to say if you have a family, you do it, or if, you, if you're single, it, 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 there's no qualifiers. And so a family of one gets to live out the heart of God as much as a family of four. I'm also going to tell you as a church, take good care of one another. We travel a little bit, and so when you travel, somehow you get a moment with people, and people will open up a little more. Just because they're kind of safe, we're going to get on a plane and leave, or get in a car and leave, and people will, will open up a little bit. And the repeated story is, I have, I have no one if it's not for this church. You don't have any idea what this church means to me. You have no idea what these people mean to me. You have no idea what this class means to me. You have no idea what this youth group means to me. If you're not taking good care of each other, may there be a pox on you. Because hanging on to each other is part of what we do. And so while it's a relationship summit, let me remind you, in God's, in God's economy, the relationships are rich and broad and deep. And some of you, it will be marriage. And for some of you, it will not be. But you will still you will still find the kingdom of God is where God lavishly pours out his blessing. And so take good care of each other as, as singles. On just a, yeah, let's hold another route to go. Let me pick up and talk about a subject here for a little while that goes like this. Um, so if you actually went home and invested in your mate, how do you invest? What's the investment you make? If a man's going to really love his wife and love her well, what does he do to love her? Many a man has gotten in the truck and driven away and said, that didn't go well. Because you girls are complex. And knowing how to, knowing how to love you well, we kind of scratch your head on occasions and go, it sounded good in my head before I tried to pull it off. <laughs> Women have to be so frustrated. What do I do with this guy? By the way, it's a scientific fact, it can be proven, that women spend more time trying to figure out what men are thinking than men spend time thinking. But anyhow, that's another <laughs> sideline. So how do you as a man love a woman and how does a woman love a man? There are about 12 times the wife is addressed in Scripture, 11 or 12 times straight address. There's about 10 or 11 times that a man is addressed in Scripture, straight addressed. Each of those times, they focus on a different word and a different concept. So when a man loves a woman, repeatedly, this concept shows up in Scripture. And when a woman loves a man, it's a different word. Which means what? It means the designer wired us different. We're almost two different species. And that means you cannot take somebody home and love them the way you would like to be loved. Not, not really. Because a male comes out of his own maleness and he tends to love her the way a male would want to be loved. And it doesn't always connect. And, and vice versa. So how do we love one another? By the way, this will apply to parenting. How do you raise little boys and little girls differently? This is the same issue. This is the same issue. How do you look after your parents differently? If you want to love your parents, how do you do this? And so this concept is pretty, pretty universal. Let me tell a story. I, uh, 
I've told the story through the years. Some of you may have heard me somewhere along the line tell this story, but it's the simplest, easiest way I know how to get there. We lived at Walker on the other side of Nevada for our first ministry. Julie and I were headed to New Zealand uh, when I got out of Bible college, and at the very last minute, we were denied the work visas. New Zealand and Walker, we, we, you know, they're very similar, very similar. Missed it by that much. Uh, it was five years of real delight. They loved on us. They allowed us to learn how to figure out at least some stuff in ministry. And we shot ourselves in the foot, and they still loved us anyhow. We were so grateful for that. From there, I went to Joplin. But we had um, our first two children while we lived at Walker, born at Nevada Hospital. Um, Troy is born, and I bring a little boy home, and, and I'm not, I mean, how do you raise a little boy? What are you supposed to do? Well, a little boy began to reveal how you love a little boy pretty quickly. I'm going to fast forward. Let's make him three years old or whatever age we want to here. I would come in the front door of the the house at Walker, and a little boy would grab my hand. His name's Troy, and Troy began to almost pull me immediately. Now, Troy was not a, a great extrovert. He's not a great outgoing kid, but he would grab my hand and begin to pull me and begin to say, Daddy, come look. Daddy, come see. Daddy, come look. Daddy, come see. And, and, and he'd been playing with trucks and tractors waiting at that door for me to come. It wasn't like I just showed up unexpectedly. He was waiting for me. Well, I, I, I knew I could, I figured out you could break a little boy's heart in the blink of an eye by going, I don't got time to come look. I haven't got time to go see. He's got a little toddler sister who's 18 months younger. She's around there. And, and there's Julie and life. And you know, I could crush a little boy's heart by not having time to come look and come see. So he would take me by the hand, and he would kind of pull me, and he would, Daddy, come look, Daddy, come see me. He would take me to the other room, and in the other room, he would show me something he'd made, built, learned, destroyed, torn up, or something along that line. I also learned you could crush a little boy's heart very quickly. We're going, Troy, that's not so good. Troy, the big blocks go on the bottom, and the little blocks go on top. Or, Troy, that's not very good. The, you're coloring outside of the line. You could get to his heart pretty quick with anything like that. No, I learned that what a little boy craves... Untaught, uncoached, but he craves, was the voice that said, Troy, that's really good. Nice job, son. Mind if we tear that out? Can we put that on the refrigerator? Do you mind if we tear that out? Can we send that to Grandma? Nice job, son. And a little boy would blossom. Okay, I got this parenting business figured out. If you're going to parent children, brag on them. That's, that, that must be what parenting is. Well, 18 months later, Katie is now three. And she wasn't the same. I would come in the same door. I mean, you know, in a sense, I, I, I'm, I'm being sloppy with my years here. And, but I would come in the same door, and I would have a little girl who'd run up. The same thing the little boy did. He'd run up and hug me by the, by the leg and then say, Daddy, come look. Daddy, come see. Well, Katie would come up and rug, hug me by the leg Throw arms around me. And then Katie did this weird thing. She went off a little ways from me. And she first time she did it, I didn't even understand what she was saying. She put her hands on her hips, turned her little head with this little flirt. And she says, as clear as a bell, today I'm not daddy's girl, I'm Johnny's girl. 
Johnny is, turned out to be a brother-in-law who married Julie's sister. But it was, today I'm not daddy's girl, I'm Johnny's girl. And I'm going, what is that? Well, I figured very quickly that you can crush a little girl's heart by saying, fine, be Johnny's girl, see if I care. You know that wasn't my line. She's standing here, I'm standing here, and I'm going, oh, no, you're not Johnny's girl, you're daddy's girl. No, I'm not, I'm Johnny's girl, she's giggling. Oh, no, you're not Johnny's girl, you're daddy's girl. Yes, I am. And then she, I would start toward her, and she would run off, and we had a big recliner. About 12 people could sit inside of it. We had a big recliner over in the corner of the room, and she would run and get behind that recliner. And I would do the old giant walking across the room, stomp, make big noise. And she's giggling behind a chair. And I would reach around the chair till I found a body part. And I would pull a little girl out. And when I pulled her out, she's laughing and giggling and I'm laughing. And then she would look at me and she'd say, okay, today I be daddy's girl. Daddy, would you read to me? And I would pull her up in my lap and we would read. Now, I'm not telling you a one-time episode. I'm telling you repeated patterns, day after day. Oh, what's going on? How did God wire a man or a boy's heart? It isn't hard. The hardwiring in a man or boy's heart is pretty simple. Is anybody here proud of me? Do I amount to anything in your sight? Is there anything you can respect in me? Is there anything admirable? And the craving of an untaught little boy, is anybody here proud of me, will never go away. 93-year-old men want to know, did my life amount to anything? Is anybody proud of me? What's the craving of a little girl's heart? The craving of a little girl's heart is something along the line. Does anybody have time for me? Do I matter? Is there a place in your life for me? And little girls never really change from that. 93-year-old women still want to know, is there any place in your life for me? I could use lots of illustrations to run with this, but let me take Troy and Katie. That's the reason God gave children to preachers is for illustrations. <laughs> Troy would be 13 years of age in this picture. Troy turned out to be six, almost 6'3", six, and all those things. But here's a skinny, gangly, 13-year-old boy. And, and he's outside on the garage pad shooting baskets. And I'm inside the house. And, and, and he would always do this. this. This is uncoached, untaught. Healthy kid, normal kid. Not a great demanding kid. Just He would open the house door and say, Hey, Dad, come out here. I want to show you something. Hey, Dad, I want you to see something. And I would go out. and He would show me something he was doing on a three-pointer or something he was doing on dribbling or because he has Garrus genetics, he was showing me how he could get within two feet of touching the bottom of the net. 
But he would want to show me something. And what was he fishing for? What's a 13-year-old boy fishing for? Hey, Dad, are you proud of me? Hey, Dad, did you see anything in me you admire? What he really wanted to do was take me on -on one-on-one. And so we'd play one-on-one. And I could still always beat him because I would cheat. (laughs) But what he really wanted, never obviously, it's more subtle, was for me to lean against the wall and go, Troy, you're, man, nice job, son. You, you didn't give up a minute ago when I had you. Nice job, son. Wow. And I'm huffing and puffing and trying to catch my breath and going to go, you, you, you got me. Next two or three weeks, you're going to get me in this game. And what he wanted to know is the craving, is anybody here proud of me? Katie turned 13. We haven't got time to put all this in. (laughs) I'd love to tell you more of the story, but Katie is 13, and she's out shooting baskets. Katie's six foot tall, and she turned out to be all-state, all-American in college. and She's pretty good, but she didn't get into sports because she liked sports. She got into sports because it's how she could hang out with her father. She was my sissy girl who liked to play the piano and not get her hands dirty. She hated getting her hands dirty. As a little girl, but because her dad knew better how to do activity-centered things, she kind of gravitated towards sports a little bit to get in her dad's life, to be the truth about it. But Katie would be shooting baskets. And she would open the door, but she never said what Troy said. When she opened the door, it was always this, Hey, Dad, would you come stay with me while I shoot baskets? Hey, Dad, would you come shoot baskets with me? It was always inclusion of life. And Troy's was always, is anybody proud of me? That never, ever changes. I'm looking at that clock. Your clocks go twice as fast in Kansas. (laughs) Here's what I know. Out of the well over 3,000 couples I work with in problem marriages, I've never had one man ever say, you know, I'm just not happy in my marriage. Oh, she's so proud of me and she admires me and she thinks so highly of me, but I'm just not happy in my marriage. Every man who's ever struggled in his marriage has been something along the line of Nothing I ever do is right. Anything I do, I I didn't do quick enough. If I did it, I should have done it the way her dad did it. If I did it, if it was my idea, it, it doesn't mean anything. But if the hairdresser told her she comes home and she's so excited about it, everything feels to me like it's a little bit of a criticism. Why are women stereotyped as being nagging? Do women nag? Well, they may. But the truth is, if you have a spot that I'm already bruised in, when you bump that spot, I'm really aware of that. So women may not nag as much as, as the stereotype goes, but what it's always tied to is a little bit of criticism. And every woman is married to a three-year-old boy. 
Well, can I not say this is frustrating to me? Can I not say this is a weakness? Absolutely, you can say those things. This is real life. But you better say it in the context. If you have any idea how proud I am of you, do you know how glad I am to be married to you? Do you have any idea when I watched you last week as you handled that? Do you know the pride I felt? Do you know what a joy it is to share your name? Do you have any idea? When a woman understands, God, you gave me a bit of a three-year-old little boy, Everything that may happen, I don't know in life. Here's the one thing he is going to know. I'm proud of him. Well, women, someday that's going to take some days. That takes great creativity. You may have to throw out 12 or 14 frustrating things to find the one thing you can plant your feet on. But you can either land and live your life on the things that frustrate you or you can land on the things that build you and bond you. You get to decide where you're going to live. I have to be careful with this because I, these are people's lives. But my dad was not a Christian when I was growing up. Dad didn't become a Christian until a little later in life. Dad's a great elder. Dad and mom have a great marriage. My dad was a hundred times better man than his father was. And my dad became a hundred times better man when he finally knew who Christ was well. But I watched my mom with a dad who didn't know always his own emotions, and my dad was a little left-footed, and dad didn't know what to do with a lot of emotions, so dad just transferred him to anger. If dad felt fear, he just let anger come out and show. If dad felt ashamed, he just let anger come out and show. Most people don't know their emotions. They just transfer them to one that's permissible or from their family. And, and my mom was a Christ follower. And I remember how mom talked about dad when dad was still struggling. I, I remember what mom chose to see in dad when dad was left-footed. I watched my mom live out a wounded three-year-old little boy who now had his own family. And I watched how my mom decided, I'm going to treat your dad. And I'm going to hunt through and I'm going to find the things. And you could find him a dad easy. My goodness, my dad was getting up at four in the morning and milking cows for Walt Sharp. We were dirt poor. He would go to the case dealership at eight and work all day. He would go milk cows for Walt Sharp after he got off work. Dad would go get on a tractor when he got done doing that, and dad would farm his own stuff till midnight. We'd go out in the field. Dad was a hard worker providing, but dad had his weaknesses. But my mom decided, I'm going to be proud of that man. And people tend to live up or down to what you think about them. The great marriages in this room are not from the unflawed people. The great marriages in this room are people who have flaws, but somebody said, from a wife's perspective, today he's going to know I'm proud of him. Somehow, when she's putting her makeup on, when she's combing her hair, when she's brushing her teeth, it's somehow, somehow today, I'm going to use words like I noticed and I appreciate and thank you and I ever tell you. When that becomes the rhythm of your life, three-year-old little boys that you're married to that are 33 and 93 just flourish better. Every little girl, every little girl who gets married tends to marry a guy who forgets he's married to a three-year-old little girl who wants to know, is there any place in your life for me? And she ends up often in bad marriages or struggling marriages. She 
She feels like she's married to somebody that she has to compete against his work and compete against his friendships and compete against his hobbies and compete against everybody else, but I don't know where I fit in his life. The man who, who loves his wife best is a man who's got all kinds of activity and life and all the things that occurs, but sweetheart, every day I'm going to carve out a place that you know where you are in my life. Never, never will you be on my list of afterthoughts. Never will you be my roommate. And so a man who gets up in the morning and says, today, somehow, somehow I want her to know where she fits in my life. With words like I noticed and I appreciate and I ever tell you and thank you. The average guy is going, how do you love your wife? You give more time to your wife. Well, what she want me to do? If she'll just tell me what she wants to do. No. No. I, I got to cut this off, but it, let, let me. The average girl runs around with three or four other girls. I say too many. Two or three other girls. That tends to be the circle that girls run into. Find high school girls, there's two or three of them that are kind of the posse. Find college girls. There's two or three. They may know a wide circle, but there's two or three of them that are pretty tight. Janie and Sally. Janie and Sally and, you know, Cheryl. The average guy runs around in a group of of, of five to ten. Well, not all together. That would be a gang. But, (laughs) But the average guy has five to ten friends that he's pretty comfortable. If I had two tickets to a a Chiefs game and I say to a guy, hey, ask a friend to go with you, he will go to five or ten guys, and, and if he can't, out of the ten guys, find a guy to the Chiefs game, he'll come back and say, hey, I couldn't find somebody. Five to ten. The average girl, if I would give two tickets to, well, maybe the Chiefs game, I have no idea, but, but two, 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 and I say, hey, go find a friend and go, she will go to about three, maybe four people at the most and say, I couldn't find a friend. Why do girls run in tighter circles? Because the sense of I need to belong is so strong. So the average guy who runs with five or ten brings the girl into his life, loves her, includes her, and he's five to ten. And she starts starving to death emotionally. And he can't figure out what's wrong with his emotional woman. You've got to carve out a spot. You've got to carve out a spot. Let me tell you what's happened on, on the worst marriages. They got married and she kind of traded away Jamie and Sally or whatever names I made up because I'm going to be married, you know, Ralph and Ralph and I are going to go for long walks in the evening and we're going to talk and we'll, we'll sit over tables and we'll go to garage sales together and, and she's picturing that kind of a life and she got included in the five to ten people in his life and she doesn't know what to do and she gravitates back to her friends and she makes that where her intimacy is with her friends. Meanwhile, he feels like a piece of furniture in his own house, and he doesn't know where he fits, and the cycle just begins to fall apart. So what do we do? Pretty simple. Let the man be a worshiper, and every single day, in his worship to the Lord, say, God, you gave me a little girl, and she shouldn't have to fight for a place in my life. And she shouldn't have to know you have a place in my life. I will tell you, I will carve it out, I will care. Yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run lots of places and do lots of things, but I am, I'm reaching behind the chair every day and pulling you out. 
every day somewhere today. I'm pulling you out. Somewhere. It may, it, it may be, but somewhere you're going to know where you fit. You see, we're ultimately, we're ultimately practicing love the way they need it, not the way I'm automatically skilled at it. Loving people the way they need it becomes the king of this. Let me put a little transition. I'm going to turn it over to Julie. Can I remind every parent in this room, yes, discipline your kids. I've been around enough undisciplined kids. I'm not in favor of that. But I'm going to tell you the job of a father is not to make sure his, he- his son's head doesn't get too big. The average father makes sure he, he, he says to his son enough things to make sure my kid doesn't get big. Your boy doesn't need you, number one thing, to make sure his head doesn't get big. What your son needs more than anything else is a father who he knows is proud of him and admires him and thinks well of him. Every little girl, both from her mom and her dad, Little girls, four-year-old girl, fourth-grade little girl, eighth-grade girl. She needs to know, is there a place in your life? Parenting is primarily figuring these things out and how am I going to do them with the personality of the one we have. Great marriages are choice. It involves choosing to love. Let the man see to it that he loves his wife. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. And let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. That's the way we receive love. I'm I'm going to peek publicly. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. Do this fast. Um, what's love look like? This is one more big rock that we've got to have. And I'm going to take it outside the realm of marriage and just tell you a story from the church setting. And this happened years and years ago, early on in our marriage. I had, uh, as a young person, I was teaching a Bible study at church for women. And when I got through, I was walking out to the car and a lady comes up to me and she said, well, I guess you probably know you hurt so-and-so's feelings today I said what (laughs) I mean I'm I'm a kid and I'm going oh my word that's never been my intention in my life to hurt somebody's feelings and uh, she said well I think you did so you might want to check on that so I am not a confrontational person but I decide let's get this taken care of quickly So I gave her time to get home. I called her on the phone and I said, it's just been my understanding that maybe I have said something in that study that was offensive to you and I'm just checking. And she said, well, that's not all you've done. Whoa. I mean, and at that time, again, I'm just a young girl and I am crushed. And I said, oh, well, then maybe there's something more we better talk about. Do you mind if I grab Randy and we'll come out and we'll visit? And can we come right now? And she said, yes, come on. And so we got out there, and Randy will remember this as well as I do, because these were good friends of ours that we loved. And uh, so we get out there, and 
she starts in on what I had done to offend. And then she quickly goes to other things I have done. And it was soon easy to see that she has rehearsed this list over and over and over again in her mind. And it was maybe some truthful stuff, I guess, but there were some things that was just ridiculous. Like she'd asked me to play the organ at church on a Sunday. And I said no. And I thought that was okay because I really don't know how to play the organ. <laughs> but evidently it wasn't. And, and soon Randy got in on the fault finding too. It wasn't just me, it was him. And I got to tell you, that was really hard for me because I thought we were fine. And here she had a list of wrongs that she could just fire through in nothing fact, in no time at all. So well rehearsed in her mind. I want you to know that ended very good, but it took time. And we have a wonderful relationship with that family. I say that because this is what happens when people get married. You know, you start out and you're so excited to be married. And you have this list of everything that guy does right. I married him because he has a great sense of humor. I married him because my mother said, if you're going to marry a preacher, marry a good one. Because you're going to have to listen to him the rest of your life. So I had listened to this guy when I was young, and I thought, I can listen to him. I liked him because he loved children. I liked him because he had a great family. I liked how he treated his mother. And I could just go running down this list of everything that man did right. But somewhere in marriage, it may be three months in, it may be six months in, it may be a year in, we begin to form a new list. And it's all the things that he does wrong that really ticks me off, that really pushes my button. And it's stupid stuff. Stupid stuff is what really gets marriages into trouble. I mean, he, to this day, Randy chomps his ice. We'll be in the car, and he's chomping that ice. And it's just, when we first got married, he had this habit of when we get ready for bed, he lays his pants out alongside the bed. And I'm, I would go, honey, why don't you hang your pants up? Well, I just feel funny about that. I mean, I may need them in the middle of the night and, and. I finally waited till he was asleep one night, and I said, Fire! <laughs> he never grabbed his pants. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> oh, it could be such silly stuff like that. It can be opinions that we have. It can be habits that we have. It could be things that he says. Randy and I both tell the same stories over and over and over and again. We can mouth them right along with each other. And we can begin rolling our eyes. And, and this is what happens, people, that I want to remind you of. You know that list you had when you first got married and everything was great? 
you begin to form that other list. And one of those days, you look up somewhere into the marriage and you go, he's in the red. And it's a wake-up call because you realize in your bookkeeping that you've been doing, you're checking all these red marks on him. He's coming out in the red, and that's not fair. Because you know him in your heart. That's a good man. But you've just been making red marks. Isn't it funny that Paul would say in Scripture, love keeps no record of wrong. The two can't coincide together. You can't say you love somebody and keep a record of wrongs. So my encouragement for you today as we close this off is to remember that that bookkeeping term that's used in Scripture, and that's what it is. It's an accountant's term that Paul uses. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It won't work. And maybe some of you in this room that have rehearsed that list over and over again so much that you are so bitter and you have these little speeches that go on in your mind, oh my goodness, I've done that before. And it's maybe time to just ask forgiveness and let that list go. I want to close with these words from the scripture, Psalm 103. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. If the Lord is the one that we're to follow, and he would remove our marks from us, Let's do that with one another. God bless you.